we we were inbound we were getting turned inbound to engage on enemy hadn't engaged on them yet and as we rolled inbound um my co-pilot took around to his his right leg shattered his femur started screaming i was in a bank and even though he's screaming over the the voice activated comms so i can hear everything right that's not the most important thing I had to deal with at that point. I had an engine shot out and my flight controls were jammed. So we're falling, I can't correct the aircraft and we're power limited. And he's screaming because he's shot. Welcome to the Leading with Vulnerability podcast. I'm your host, Yuma Barnett. And today my guest is Brian Slade. And Brian has a very interesting story. Uh, former Army enlisted, I believe he said before he uh, came on, and then Army Army pilot. And then uh, he jumped ship from the Army and went over to the Air Force and lived the good life like many of us Army guys look back in retrospect. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a in an in an Air Force base on Hunter Army Airfield in the barracks of of, of an air, old Air Force barracks that wasn't good enough for the Air Force anymore, but that was good enough for for First Ranger Battalion to live in for a number of years. So uh, always everywhere we go, we look across the fence or across the the runway and see you know we try to sneak over there and get some Air Force Chow or just you know get in their MWRs or whatever it is. So I, I can't blame him for for doing that, and I think it worked out in his to his advantage. And, and we'll discuss that a little bit, but uh, I won't take any more of the time here. I'll let Brian introduce himself and we'll get on with the conversation. Yeah. You've got, you kind of hit all the high points. I, I was enlisted for seven years as a maintainer, a diesel mechanic for the heavy wheel, uh, the engineer stuff. And, but my intent always was to eventually commission and fly. Uh, and so that I did that with the army through the ROTC and the simultaneous membership program being enlisted reserves while I went through uh, college and then the ROTC scholarship through that as well. And then flew Apaches, uh, which is what uh, the book really chronicles. My first cleared hot book uh, is it chronicles my first deployment with the Apaches, which was a horrendous, <laughs> horrendously long deployment as 23 months. Um, but not all of it was downrange. Um, big part of it was actually getting us spun up and certified on the new longbow. We flew alpha, alpha model Apaches and we, we upgraded the longbow uh, and we had to get certified as a, as a unit. And they, for some reason said, Hey, let's just put those back to back. <laughs> you oh, know? Of course. It, yeah. So we did that and it was just like, Oh, forever. And, uh, but while downrange as an Apache driver, um, had a lot of crazy experiences near death experiences, those type of situations where they really just make you pause and go, wow, you know, and change your perspective on certain things. And then really what, what had happened to me is I came back and I saw that my peers, we all digested that trauma or whatever you want to call it differently. Right. Uh, some of us, some of us, it really negatively affected and some, some of us it, were grew from it. I call it post-traumatic stress growth. Other people call it that too. Um, and I, and it really made me pause and go, why, why is there, why are there differences there? And that's what the book's, uh, catalyst was, is I really got in there with some of the guys with letters behind their names and smart, smarty, boomalati guys. And, uh, we, 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 we tore it down and we said, here's some things that you, that you were doing to me. Cause I, I feel like I feel in the category of growth. Um, it became a, a foundation of a better version of me rather than, uh, you know, an obstacle. And we tore that down and 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 distilled it into some principles that are teachable. Now, 
obviously some things aren't teachable like yeah. how you grew up how you how it was what was your family atmospherics like were were you traumatized as a kid i can't change that but there were some things that we we did identify as teachable so that's that's where the book came from and then i transitioned to the air force like you said and i i joke about it i said the reason i joined the air force or transitioned to the air force was all the same reasons i didn't join it to begin with like when I was a young kid full of testosterone, I ain't joining the pansy force. I'm not, I'm not getting in the chair force where they, you know, they stay, they stay in four star hotels and they, I'm a military. You gotta be a little tough in the military. Right. And, and then, then I was like, Hmm, they stay in four star hotels and their deployments are three months, four months, you know? And so yeah, I transitioned over. It allowed me to keep flying, continue flying even as, as, as I continued to climb in the rank which is not always available in the army. It's not as available in the air force either, but depending on what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. And, uh, we'll get into that. We're going to take it all the way back to kind of the reasons you joined and all that stuff, but to, to set the stage for it and, uh, and kind of get to where your mind's at, I'd just be curious, you know, it's the leading with vulnerability podcast. So I ask all my guests, uh, what's your, uh, what's your definition of vulnerability? I mean, vulnerability is really just being honest with all the aspects of things that make you you, right? So there are things that make us who we are that we, for some reason, feel like we don't want to uh, excavate, right? We don't want to put that out there. Uh, and often, depending on the situ situation or what that scenario is, that, that hinders our growth. And it also can, it can fester if we hold that down. Yeah. It, right? It can become a wound that wasn't treated correctly. And now you're gang gangrenous. Right. Yeah. Um, so to me, vulnerability is just, it's just being honest with what makes you, you, uh, you know, putting it out there. And now I'm talking vulnerability, like on the emotional sense, like obviously there's social vulnerability, there's physical vulnerability, there's all these other kind of vulnerabilities too. But, but for the emotional vulnerability, I would say it's just being honest with what makes you, you, right. what, wh where you're at. Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more, and that's a very similar answer that I've heard from from many people that have, have been on the show here. So, if we take it all the way back to when you first uh, joined the military, what what led you to the military? Was there a, a family lineage there, or something you just always wanted to do, or were you trying to like me, trying to get out of a small town? What why did you join the military in the first place, and what uh, what took you to the army? <laughs> yeah, so it was a conglomerate of many different reasons. I, I've always been a kind of an adrenaline guy, so it fit that category right and i'm i come from uh, i'm a, one of eight year eight kids from a teacher you know teacher my dad was a teacher so there's no way my school is going to get paid for by parents um I, I did have some football money like football scholarship money but but uh so there's the benefits there's the patriotism there's the adrenaline side of it and then I got an incentive right in a helicopter and I was like, yep, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so sometimes it's just, it's just that simple, you know, to, to, to why people jo join the, uh, the military, any branch that is. Um, so you did your enlisted time, your, your first seven years and transitioned over being a helicopter pilot. So this is a short question, but I'm sure it's got a, got a long answer. Um, uh, what, why did you want to be a helicopter pilot and, and what did you learn? What, you know, in your army time as a pilot, I mean, what was that experience like? Um, I mean, how can I know this can be tough to sum it up, but for somebody out there that's, you know, in a mid-career transition or thinking about going and, and flying, uh, you know, what what was your experience with being a pilot and why do you love it and why do you still do it today? So I can make it short. Um, 
I wanted to be a helicopter pilot because it's awesome. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, my experience has been awesome. Right now, now I can give you more detail as well. But, but really, you know, I like I said, I got an incentive right as an enlisted guy, and I sat in the back of a Blackhawk, and 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 of course those pilots do what I now do, and they try to like make us puke. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, this is so cool. I didn't know helicopters could move like this. Yeah. I didn't. This is a roller coaster with no rails. This is awesome, you know. And and so that's that was part of what drove me to it. But then once you you get into the airframe itself. And my first airframe, like I said, was the Apache. And that is a badass machine, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't fully appreciate how awesome it was when I first learned it. I mean, I, I was like at awe. I was like, this is a this is the size of a semi, but moves like a Ferrari in three dimensions and can, oh, by the way, blow up a town if it needs to. I mean, that's just some awesome capability, yeah. right? But you don't understand what that means until you actually wield that weapon, right? You think you do, but then you go downrange and you realize, one, the machine's good at what it does. And what does it do? It destroys enemy. That's what it does. It's an instrument of death. It is. Yeah. So I don't know what I was expecting initially when I, oh, this is awesome. I mean, I knew what it did. But you don't understand it until you understand it, yeah. right? Once you once you wield it and you realize that there is a misproportion of force that you have at your fingertips that you can deal to the enemy with, preci- with precision, that it really kind of hits home. They're yeah. like, I'm a, I'm a one word there. You know, you fly two and you fly with two helicopters. So there's actually usually four of you out there. We are a four-man wrecking team, right? For righteousness, hopefully, right? Yeah. That's the intent, that you have righteous intent. So to answer the question a little bit more ethereal, it was it was a spiritual um, experience because you had to get right with, with what you were doing temporally and who you were taking off the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Um, I, I've, I've got a lot of experience on the ground with an Apache overhead or calling in gun runs with Apache or calling in support. Um, from my perspective, you know, it's always great to know that you have that asset overhead to, to uh, CYA if you get into trouble, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it has definitely done that. Uh, when you're on the ground, I mean, and you're in a good gunfight, um, it's different. The perspective is different, obviously, um, than it is when you're up there in, in flying. I just want to know from a pilot's perspective, when you get that call from the JTAC on the ground or the forward observer and asking you to come in because uh, all hell is broken loose and we need some support, what what goes through your mind w- when you're coming in for that first uh, that first run? Honestly, like that's our whole purpose, right? Our whole purpose is to to is to to. To feel the relief in your voice when we start laying hay, right? It, it, the ground guys, when when they they're like, "Thank you," you know, that's all you're doing that for, right? Yep. Because I get to go home and sleep in a hooch, <laughs> right? Which isn't that fancy, right? But it's not outside the wire, right? The, the you know, a lot of times you guys are outside the wire. You're you're kicking in doors. You, I just have a mad respect for that that closeness. To the enemy right and any way i could take 
away stress level from those guys is just rewarding. And, and, and so, yeah, when we called in, when we, when I, when I, when we got a call from the guys on the ground and said, we need your help. I was like, heck yes, yes. This yeah. is what we, do. this yeah. is what we do. Tell us what you need. Where do we go? Let's develop this. Let's figure it out and let's make your life easier. Yeah. And, and so it was, it was invigorating, honestly. Yeah. Is there, is there moments, I mean, as a ground guy, you know, when you, when you get back uh, to the, to the fob or uh, when the contact is over, you know, you kind of AAR it in your head and say, I wish I could have done this and done that different. But for you guys, it's different. You're going back to the airfield refueling and stuff. So what's the after effect kind of like uh, from the pilot perspective when, uh, when, I mean, you're hearing everything that's going on, on the radio, you got casualties, uh, you got friendly killed in action, you get, you're getting the updates of how many enemy and how many we think are there and enemy KIA. Um, what's the, what's it like when you get back uh, and I mean, you're so close to it and then you fly back to the fob, wherever it is, and you might be so far removed of it than those ground guys. Is there this like, Oh, you want to get back out there in it? Uh, what, what is your, what is the after effect of that? So we do a very similar, I mean, there's still an AAR where we kind of, we'll listen to our gun tapes and go through, Hey, what did we do here? How did, how, how could we have done it better? How, how did we screw it up? Yeah. You know, because it, there's always lessons to be learned in every single, every single mission. And and my book goes through a lot of things where I learned because I made, because I was, I made a mistake. Right. Right. Like it was, there was a better way to do it. Or, and a lot of times I made a mistake, but we still won. You know, and that yeah. was mostly the case. And so you had to like really back up and say, don't beat your chest, analyze this thing. So luck, luck, luck's on our side. And also like the sheer, the sheer dominance of that machine that we were flying yeah. would compensate for a lot of bad mistakes, right? Uh, bad decisions, right? It just would. And so you can't, you can't rest on your laurels with that. You have to do the AAR. You have to walk through it. And, and yeah, we were always excited to come back. You know, I, I share a story about perspective on a lot of these podcasts, and I think it's applicable here, is when I got to Afghanistan initially, I didn't know what to expect. I'd never been there before. Now I've been there several times since. But my first time with the Apache, I rolled in. I was an Advon, first guy there, get off the plane with the helicopters out of the C-17. Didn't know what to expect. Thought it was going to be like a rancid order and just a horrific landscape because it's war and it's going to yeah. be ugly. But we landed in Bagram and it smelled great. And there was beautiful Rocky Mountains in front of me. Yeah. Right. Covered in snow. Talk about a whole like what? What? It's beautiful here. Yeah. You know. And then I flew over that and I was like, man, and I'm a snowboarder and a snowmobiler. And I'm, I'm just like, man, I would I would totally run that shoot. I dropped down that. That'd be awesome. Yeah. And then you get called like you're saying. You get called from a guy on the ground and there's, there is angst in his voice. You can hear gunfire in the background. He's calling for support because the enemy is throwing stuff at him that either you're going toe for toe or they have the advantage. That's why we get called. Yeah. If you guys have, if you guys are killing it, we're not going to get called. Right? If you guys are all over it, very rarely are we overhead when you guys are kicking butt on your own. If there's, if there's, an ability for the enemy to get to you and actually hurt you. That's when we get called. Right. And so they call, they hear the gun, that, that mind shift, that perspective just shifts from the beauty that I was just absorbing to the gunfight that has now become your, that my world that was there, that is the ground guy's world. That's all he's focused on. That's all he can see is that what what's right in front of him is the gunfight. And that's true. That's what it should be. And then we roll in and that becomes our world. And, 
And it's interesting how that perspective shifts and how that's applicable in our lives because we often feel like the gunfight is the, the big picture. Right. We often feel like that's all there really is. But that gunfight ends. The gunfight is finite. And the and the mountain, the beauty that we saw there, it was there the whole time we were fighting. It didn't go anywhere. And it is there before, it's there after. It will always be there. And the, I always tell people, and the higher we get up, the bigger perspective, the more beautiful it gets. Like if you go to 30,000 feet and you're over the ugliest place on the planet, still beautiful. All right. Yeah. Right? In every direction. Right. There's still gunfights going on right beneath you. Yeah. But but that's beauty, and that's what is right. And if you go into space, I always go to this level too, because in space you see the world and the globe and the clouds and just how massive and amazing that is. And the cool part about that is it's not beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> it's not beautiful in every direction because there's no direction. Right. There's no direction. It just is. It just is beautiful. Right. Yeah. So that is the infinite. That is the eternal. The gunfight that we mistake for the for the infinite and for the eternal, often in our personal life, right? We feel like this is that, that, and that's why people take their lives because they're they're so absorbed in the gunfight, yeah, and they and they and they forget the mountains. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, when you when you're talking about flying around in Afghanistan and Bagram, I can see those mountains now. You know, I landed in there twelve times and got off a C seventeen in Bagram. And uh, I, some of my greatest memories are just early morning exfils out of Paktia province, you know, Wardak over those mountains. Uh, some, and I'm, I'm from New Mexico originally, you know, so it reminded me a lot of a lot of home uh, watching the sunrise over those over those hills. Um, so all that you, th how many years did you fly for the army? So I flew from 2003 to 2008, so five years. And then was that when you made the shift over to the Air Force side after that? I did. And and what what led to that to that shift? Um, how how what how do you do that? How do you navigate that transition from Army to Air Force? And why'd you do it? So the main reason I did it was because I the, the crazy deployment I told you about. I was married for five months prior to that deployment, so five months, then 23 months separated. Right. And it was a significant strain on the marriage. It would be a significant strain on the marriage, even if, if she was in a good place. But she struggled with mental disorder, yeah. a borderline, borderline mental or borderline personality disorder. And and so that. That complicated it even further. And so I was like, I, we won't last. We will not last if I continue this. And so I applied to the Border Patrol, the Coast Guard, the Air Force. Uh, like I, I looked for all these transition programs, which most of most government agencies do have a transition program between them, right? Some are competitive. Some are just a process. Um, I applied to all of them. They all accepted me. Um, and then I basically left it up to her. I was like, which one? And she's like air force. I was like, okay. So, um, the air force one was one that was a board. I didn't know it was a board. I did. I filled out all the paperwork. I thought it was just a process. And then they're like, congratulations, you made it. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I filled out the paperwork, you know, like, well, usually uh, dissimilar airframes, which an Apache is dissimilar than a Pavehawk, right? A, a Blackhawk is the equivalent, right? Yeah. So there's Blackhawks in the Army, Pavehawks in the Air Force. Usually they'll pick up the Blackhawk pilots because we have a lot of Army Blackhawk pilots, right? Yeah. Um, but I had a lot of combat experience at that point. Now I'd have a, a, over a thousand hours, I think, of combat in the Hellman, um, and they're like, "That's where we're at." Right then they were they were they were flying combat rescue in the Hellman. They're like, 
So that's what puts you over the edge. Yeah. So that was the reason I transitioned. Now, <laughs> how was that? You know, I went from the army where you are empowered as an officer very young. Like, and the army is a lieutenant. You're in charge of men and you're in charge. You make the decisions, right? You, you know, this is Rangers. Like, like you, they, they, they empower leaders really young. Yeah. Right. The Air Force is much different. So I went from being as a captain, I transitioned over. I went from being in charge of a company element that that literally I had to say of what was going on to basically like almost a private. Right. Like you're, oh, wow. you're literally you just don't really have that much say as a captain. And I thought that was going to be amazing, which because I'm like, oh, no more responsibility. Fly. <laughs> It'd be great. Right. But it's still you, what you're used to is what you're used to. You know, and so it was a little difficult for me to just be like, take that back seat at first. And then I did get comfortable with it a little bit and realize I'm just going to be a pilot. This is fun. I can just fly. Right. Yeah. Um, but every organization has its own retardation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and when you grow up in the army, you're like that frog that you put in the water and slowly heat it up. Yeah. You know, it's retarded, but you don't, it doesn't really like great at you. But then when you go to another organization, you didn't get a warm up in that water. They throw you right into the boiling water and you're, all the retardation just hits you in the face. Right. And so you have to you have to back up and get a higher perspective, like I said, and realize that that's the case. Otherwise, you'll be very bitter. You'll yeah. become very bitter. Yeah. And so at first I started down the bitter route and then I realized, oh, wait, everybody's retarded. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, that that's that, that's that's great stuff there. So, um, you're still flying now in the in the Air Force, which we spoke. That's uh the ex, kind of the except except in the Army, you wouldn't be flying as much in the current pay grade that you're in versus the Air Force. Why why is that? Well, I mean, in the Army, like I had, I that was part of my decision making too. Is I had had company command in the Army. And I had lucked out. Even in the Army, commission guys don't typically fly as much as the warrants, right? Yep. But I, I went right to a line company or the companies that, you know, operational where you're flying as a platoon leader. So you do fly as a platoon leader, just about as much as a, the same as a warrant, really. And But typically, a, a second lieutenant will go to a, a really minimal minion type staff first. They'll do some staff. Then they'll come as a first lieutenant as a platoon leader. Then they'll go back to some weird staff thing. Then they'll come back as a company commander, right? Yep. So they, anytime they go to the staff thing, they lose a lot of, of flight hours. I went from platoon leader to platoon leader to company commander, all in a line company. So I flew, I flew, and I flew. Um, and and I had command, and I realized this is as good as it gets. Yeah. Right? I, I, from here on out, I am going to be at a computer. Right. Like, the, the, And I'm ahead of the schedule. So I'm not only am I going to be at a computer – I'm going to be at a computer longer than most people would be at a computer. So uh, that was a part of the driving decision too, is like, I'm, I love the Apache. I love it. I'm good at employing it, but I'm not going to fly it anyway. I'm done flying, right? I'm going to go, I'm going to go push papers, which just wasn't something that seemed sexy to me. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem sexy to, to most of us from, you know, that do that. And, you know, I've had many conversations with the uh, army captains that are like, this is it for me. I'm doing this company command and it's over for the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it is. So, um, some guys love it though. That's their whole intent. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Um, so all that time that you have flying, all the experience you have, you transition from enlisted into, into flying. Um, somebody out there listening that's considering the same career path. Uh, Army or Air Force, what what advice would you give them? I, I, you you cut out a little bit. Somebody enlisted, as you say, enlisted. 
somebody either that's enlisted that's transitioning wants to go be a warrant or you know go fly as an officer or in the air force anybody that wants to follow a flight career path what what advice would you give them so yeah the the, the uh army does have like you know enlisted to warrant type programs um and you don't have to have a degree or anything like that and so that's a very unique opportunity i think uh, to get to get into basically an officer position without without having to do yeah. the the painful part of being an officer, right? So if somebody's looking to just fly, I think it's a great program. Now, the Army, like we just talked about, doesn't have the same quality of life as the Air Force. It just doesn't, right? The Air Force is does treat their people better. <laughs> like, yeah. I think, I don't know, it, I, I think it's a product of the assets in the Air Force are very expensive. Yeah. Right. You got jets and bombers and everything like that. And they're super expensive. And so there's a lot of money that flows in there. And the amount of people to that expense is a low ratio. So there's just money bleed over for in that kind of in that kind of way. And so I think that's probably why they take better care of it. So that is, that is something you have to take into consideration if you're going to be a warrant. Um, you, if you want to be in aviation in in the air force, you do have to be an officer. And, and if you're already in the army and you want to be an aviator in the air force, it, you can do the warrant and then transition to the air force. So you could, hmm. you can do that. Now, I think they still do require you to get a degree within a certain amount of time, but you get paid, they pay you to do that. Yeah. Right? So there's lots of different avenues on getting there. And now's a good time because, um, People are getting out. Yeah. Like people are getting out. And so every time there's a mass exodus, they really, they reduce the bar. <laughs> like yeah. they're like, like they'll, we'll wave that. We'll wave this. We'll wave that. Like when I, when I went in, it was right, you know, it was uh, when I was doing aviation, it was 2002. So there was a lot of patriotism in 2002 for obvious reasons. Right. Yeah. And so it was super competitive. Like if you had, like I almost didn't make, I almost didn't get aviation because I had granuloma in my lung, which like a certain percentage of all population does. It's just the body walls off some foreign thing. It's not cancerous or anything. It's just a, just a little cyst in your lung has zero effect on me. Could have been there my whole life. And they're like, yep, that's a disqualifier. Oh, wow. I mean, they're just, I mean, basically anything to thin the herd. Right. And, uh, I was able to get through that, but not just for by pushing and hammering yeah and obviously it didn't affect me i mean 20 years later yeah still you know. still going strong yeah um yeah uh, and then you know kind of wrap up talking about some of your military stuff in your time two two questions or two two sides of a coin what was your what was your most challenging day in your uniform or a day that you off that you look back often you know and wish you could have done something different or or it's just you know has it leaves a bad taste in your mouth well I mean, this is like towards the end of the, the book and the book naturally builds in into a crescendo, I guess, if you will, or, or climax. And that's not that wasn't because we wrote it that way. That's just the way it worked. And towards the end of my deployment of this deployment we're talking about, um, we we were inbound. We were getting turned inbound to engage an enemy, hadn't engaged on them yet. And as we rolled inbound, um, my co-pilot took around to his his right leg shattered his femur started screaming. I was in a bank and even though he's screaming over the, the voice activated comms, so I can hear everything. Right. 
that's not the most important thing I had to deal with at that point. I had an engine shot out and my flight controls were jammed. So we're falling. I can't correct the aircraft and we're power limited. And he's screaming because he's shot. So there's a lot of stuff going on that day because of that incident. What happened is his leg got shot and wrapped around the cyclic, which is the control in my, in my right hand between my legs. And that's why it was jammed because his leg was wrapped around it. I didn't know that, right? The, the Apache actually has a backup control system, but you have to break the mechanical linkage. And then there's one second where no effects happen. And then, you, then it will fly by wire, but it's real sloppy. It's like, you know, drunk driving, basically. And so, uh, not that I've ever drunk driving, but, uh, <laughs> like, but it's like that, right? So, um, and then my engine wasn't producing enough power for us to really fly. It, it, in fact, I don't know if you listen to the audio of that. It's in my media kit. Um, you'll hear him screaming, but in the background, you'll hear road RPM low, which is important because the rotor keeps us in the air right right and and the rotor rpm low means we're falling and counterintuitively the control in your left hand which makes you go up and down you have to slam it down to get rotor back so you have to increase your rate of descent when you're falling when your body wants you to yank it up because you're falling right so i had to slam that down break the cyclic over which then he screams because i flipped his leg off and then you know and then fly the helicopter to a hospital to get him in a power limited state, roll the thing on which in a backup control system, which had never been done before. So all that stuff, some of it's cool that it was done, but my, my hardest day was, was the fact that, that it even happened. I fit, I, you know, sometimes you like look back at that yeah, and you're like, what could I have done different? You know, because while that did physically damage my co-pilot and while that experience I think has actually taught me so much and, and it's benefited me. So I, I'm grateful for that, but it also psychologically was a big struggle for that, my co-pilot. Um, and, you know, if I had a steep in the bank, if I'd been more, more you know carried more airspeed if i you know if i'd done those type of things maybe that'd be different but you couldn't you can do that with any any event yeah. right it's dangerous to go down that rabbit hole and, and so i don't have any regrets and I've, I've come to peace with that it, it was what it was every engagement there's things that we could have changed sometimes there's just a negative consequence from it uh and you know I, it wasn't wrong it was just not right either right so it's like kind of in between both of those situations um but that was my toughest day i think because of the second and third order effects that came from it and i had chair flown or like visualized many emergency procedures it's some of which meant both of us got wounded in my you know chair flying or chair flying is visualization and you know and that kind of thing so some some of them, either I got wounded or we both got wounded. I never chair flew both of just him getting wounded. And I think that was like a psychological protection of myself. It was like, look, because if that happens, the onus is on me. He got hurt. I'm on the controls, right? He got hurt because of something I did or didn't do. You can, you can make that connection. Is that true? No, you're at war. Yeah. You got hurt because you're at war. That's why you got hurt, right? 
nobody's perfect in war. None of us are. And any any given incident, well, I'm sure on the ground with your Rangers, you got guys that second guess, oh, my battle buddy, oh, I could have done this, I could have done that. Yeah, you could have, but you're at war. You're doing what you can do when you can do it. Yep. Right? You can second guess until you're dead. But but it still doesn't make it easy. Right. You know, so I'm okay with it, but it doesn't make it easy. So I'd say that's probably the the diffest, most difficult day in, in uniform. Yeah. And then flip side of that, what was your, your best day or your best moments or something that you look back on and just, you know, you like to take some time and, and reminisce on it? Well, there's a lot of those. Man. You know, I really like, I have a picture of my three-year-old son pinning me to major. Um, and, you know, my son, is he's adopted, so and he's African-American, so there's some little differences between us and that kind of thing. But I, I adopted him from day one. He's been my son from, I always say I got him wet. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, which we I did. Um, and it's just, you know, he's wearing a, a flight jacket. He's he's pinning on my rank. It's just, it's just a really good memory of like, at that point I'd had like almost 20 years in the military. There's a history behind what he's doing and he's the new generation. Yeah. Connecting, connecting some pride with his dad, but also just like exemplifying the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that, picture is pretty powerful yeah that, that's very cool that's that uh, that's awesome that's a great memory to have and you know to transition a little bit of the the topic here uh you know to to some ptsd talk and some of your thoughts especially for somebody you know you're in a leadership position there um i know when i departed the army about a year ago i think some of the stigma was going away a little bit a little bit about ptsd and getting help and, and mental health however it is still there I just like your perspective on it, you know, on, from the Air Force side, um, how, how, how can, and then, you know, how, what's your advice and how do you think people can help, you know, themselves navigate the stigma, if that stigma in the organization or, or, or they have something going on in their life, um, you know, it, that's a, it's a deep and broad topic, but I just kind of like your perspective overall on some of it. It, it is a deep and broad topic. Um, it is, like you said, there, there was, I there's a stigma there was, and there is still, to, but, but it's getting better. Like we're moving in the right direction. You and I are having this conversation and there's lots of conversations like this, right? right? So what we opened up with vulnerability, right? The more, more vulnerable we become as a force, the more vulnerable we become as individuals, the, the better we are at, at healing that situation. Right. Yeah. Um, you have to, you know, sometimes you have to air a wound out for it to heal. Yeah. Right. And, and, and the stigma was keeping that from happening. Right. And so we're, we're, we're lifting that up. I do, I do, you know, the 22, the focus on the 22 a day, it, it comes from a righteous place it does. Um, but I also feel like sometimes we focus on the foregone conclusion that if a guy experiences trauma, that he's going to come back a shell of who he was. Right. Right. And I don't think that's a foregone conclusion. I, th I think there's lots of guys that come back stronger. There's lots of guys who use that trauma as a superpower. And because here's the deal, trauma inherently carries with it a great deal of power. And that is evidenced in everything that we see. If you see somebody who's, who's willing to take their own life, how much power does that trauma have? It, it has stuck him in that gunfight so deeply that he believes that that is the only reality that exists. That's yeah. powerful. Yeah. 
But then we also see the flip side of that, where we have that, like these countless stories where so-and-so grew up here and experienced all these things. And despite all odds, made it to this high elevated whatever. And it's just this amazing person. Bull crap. Not despite all odds. Because of the odds, they made it to that. They just digested the trauma differently. Right. They flipped that power on its head and used it as a superpower instead of a millstone to hang them down. They made it as a foundational piece or a cornerstone to a foundation of a better version of themselves. Right. So to me, the conversation becoming more open, us lifting that stigma, that's step one. But really, we got to help people put things in the right order, file them the way they should be and use that trauma it's not like it doesn't hurt you. It's not like you didn't, you don't have a residue of something negative that, that happened, but that is part of you and can make you a more powerful version of yourself. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the thing that, that brings you down. Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I, uh, I'd be curious cause you know, I haven't asked this of a pilot, but I know, you know, when it comes to trauma, PTSD, getting help, we, we often, I know I've done it. I found an excuse not to. Right. The, I don't deserve it because X platoon got in bigger gunfights and lost more guys. So what's my, what's my, my things minuscule compared to them. Is, is there something, have you seen the same thing with pilots? Like, well, I'm not down there on the ground with those guys in it. I don't deserve, you know, I don't want to take resources from them. I don't, I don't deserve it. Do you, have you seen that in your, in your community? Absolutely. It's, I think it's kind of human nature to compare and contrast and you cannot compare how you digest. You just can't. Like I even put this in my book, like I said, why is it easier for me to deal with the dynamic environment of the enemy throwing lead at me and destroying human life? Why is it easier to deal with that than the the caustic relationship I have with my spouse? Yeah. Why is that more traumatic to me than this? And and if anything doesn't, if that if that doesn't paint a picture that trauma is trauma, doesn't matter where you get it from, then nothing really can. Because that's something that people that are not in military deal with all the time. And that actually negatively affected me more than these things that people are like, well, how do you, you know, how do you deal with that? Right. It, one's preparation, preparation. Honest, honestly, I feel like um, we do a lot for post-traumatic stresses. I, I want to do more for pre-traumatic, right. right. Let's prepare our minds. Let's, and that's what, you know, the chair flying and some of these other things. And I talk about these principles in my book as well as like tools to prepare your mind. The awesome part about the tools is I worked with, you know, the, the people with letters behind their names and stuff is I was intent on preparation and prepare, but the same tools repair. Right. So, it, but it is, it is, it is a lot more arduous process to repair than prepare. Yeah. It just did. Yeah. It's like, Going into a sport, you're going into football and you play with pads and you get hit and you get bruised and you, you deal with it. Or you go in football and everybody else has pads and you don't, you get hit. You, you, you might take a while to heal, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and so we're talking about putting some pads on and going into, and going into play. It doesn't mean that it's not going to affect you, right. but it does mean that you've got a layer of protection that you can walk it off a lot quicker. Right? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And that you, you went right into my, my next question is, you know, how do we prepare our minds for, for the, for the trauma? Cause that's something, you know, I prepared my body a lot. I prepared my, my squad and my team, but I didn't really prepare my mind, you know, the holistically prepare for some of the things I might see or, or do, uh, I mean, you can't covered a few. Could you cover a few more? What thoughts on, on preparation? 
Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things you can do to prepare, but I've hit on it a couple of times. One one technique that people can listen to this today and start practicing is is chair flying. I've hit it a couple of times, right? And really what it is, is I've taken it to this new, a different level. I was taught chair flying, which is just walk through a scenario in your head, which is very rudimentary. But what I started doing was basically meditating, envisioning, envisioning, and then role playing, right? All as a as a as a seamless process so you meditate however you want to meditate i do use breathing like yep. there's breathing exercises and i call that you know making your garden fertile you're about to plant stuff in your mind we want it to take hold we want it to take root we want to you want to tell your brain that you are in control of the situation that you're about to visualize because there are things that can cause anxiety yeah. right if you visualize them so if you meditate and you get into that right space and say i'm in control of this space and you start visualizing you're less likely to experience the anxiety. Now, what I do tell people is if you start to experience anxiety, go right back to the meditation, right? Go back to the meditation, come back in, start visualizing and, and, and push a little further than you did last time. And you just keep doing that. But for me, I was doing that for, to prepare for emergency procedures. Like if my engine got shot out, what am I going to do? Right. And so I would prepare my mind with the meditation and I'd start to envision what each step. First thing I'm going to do is take a deep breath which happened like, right, I lost my engine, my co-pilot screening. I did take a deep breath. It was real quick because I didn't have a lot of time. Take all the time you need. You got one second, right? <laughs> so I did that. And then and then I walked through what I'm going to do. I'm going to reduce the collective. There's power, you know, I'm going to reduce that thing. I have to practice that because your, your brain is going to want to lift it up. And that's going to exacerbate the situation. It's going to make it worse. So instead, you train. You, you walk your head through that. You get to choke points as you go through these emergency procedures. And I'll get to how you do this in your regular life in a second. But as you get to a point that you get stuck, how, what, what am I going to do there? You figure it out and then you start over and get to where you walk right through that point. Like it's smooth. And you do that all the way over and over again until you go from point A to point B, smooth, effective, and, and with purpose. Then you throw contingencies in there. What if this doesn't work like it does? How, and then you get down to the like, minutia. What is my voice going to sound like? This is where you get into the role play. Yeah. You're actually moving your hands and your feet and talking how you're going to talk and saying the things you're going to say. And, and all of that serves to prepare you mentally. I was doing it for the physical aspect of it. But what I didn't realize is there's a medical term for this, and it's called stress inoculation, right? You're inoculating yourself to a very stressful situation with a weakened version, just like a virus, a weakened inoculation, a weakened version that you control. So when you actually experience that event or a like event, they're not always going to be exactly right. When you experience it, yeah, it's going to affect you, but not kill you, right? It's not going to like the virus that you got inoculated with. You might get a sniffle, but it's not going to knock you on your feet. Right. Right. Same thing with the stress inoculation. I didn't realize I was doing that. But what I realized is that's an awesome practice for anything in our life, for anything in our life. You can you can chair fly a, a difficult conversation with your spouse you, and it will help you stay where you need to stay. Because when we you know, when we talk with our spouses, we're always calm and we say everything correctly. And there's, you know, it's very effective communication. Right. That's that's how that's how it works. One hundred percent of the time. Right. 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 Yes. right? Yeah. Or not at all. Right. So like. We can get to the point where we know that we're not going to be perfect and you can actually anticipate while your partner is not going to be perfect. And then when that happens, rather than me not being perfect back, 
I'm going to do X to de-escalate. All right, you know, I'm going to do this. All right, and you walk all the way through that. And difficult conversation with your boss, uh, a challenge that you have at work. You can do this, and and you're and you're preparing your mind. You're yeah. preparing your mind for these stressful situations. So yeah, it's not going to be easy. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not going to leave these deep grooves and scar tissue in your brain, like you like if you're not prepared. Yeah. So that's one thing that people can literally start doing today, uh, and and you know, how many people, how many stories do we have of like people that are amazing athletes or have experienced great success where something like what I just said is what they do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I call yeah. it training. They call it other things. Yeah uh thanks thanks for uh sharing that yeah and you're right it's just uh there's a lot of different there's a lot of methods and a lot of different thoughts on it out there but um try something you know try something if it doesn't work try try something else be vulnerable right put yourself yeah, out there I, a little bit. I talk about it all I, I break it all down so anybody who's listening and want go get the book and listen read it and yeah. then hit me up i'm on social media hit me up on those social medias and ask me i'll you know, we can talk techniques, right? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Again, you're, it's like you're a pro segue in there. Uh, you've spoke about the book a little bit. Tell people where they, uh, again, the title of it and where they can find it. Um, well, I mean, the title is cleared hot and I chose that title intentionally. A cleared hot means that we've met all the directives necessary or all the criteria necessary to engage with lethal force, right? We're trying to minimize collateral damage. Well, the book is a war story and it's not overly didactive or instructive, but the intent is to teach people how to be cleared hot on their life, right? Move for, understand that you have the authority and you can clear your collateral and move forth with person with purpose. Yeah. So cleared hot is the title. Uh, it's on Amazon. I have a website, www.clearedhot.info. There's, there's additional data on there there. You can get the book on there too. And, um, and then I'm on all the social medias, which is Brian Slade at LinkedIn, Brian Slade at Instagram, Brian Slade at Facebook. And I'll I'll give you the links and you can add them yeah. to the to this 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 post and they can just click on them. But but yeah, it, I'd love for as many people to to I mean it, your audience will enjoy the read, regardless. Whether they get whether they want to read it for reasons that I wrote it or not it, it, everybody the feedback has all been it's an awesome war story it's nice. an awesome war story right and, and it helped me in the following ways and there's been there's been unintended consequences too people like it helped me this way and i was like oh i didn't even i didn't <laughs> do that on purpose <laughs> you know nice yeah that's awesome definitely go out there check it out check out in the comments below or yeah in the comment section of this uh, on youtube and I'll, I'll have it all dropped in there and uh as we bring in this uh helicopter to land I, I usually use plane but since you're a helicopter pilot this helicopter yeah. to land I'll, I'll i'll finish with this another question i ask everybody especially those that, that have served if you could go back and talk to that newly enlisted uh you know private coming into the army uh what what advice would you give them uh don't chew gum in formation <laughs> <laughs> um no I, honestly hang on this is you're going to experience things that there's no other way to experience Get the most out of it. Understand that every obstacle is not an obstacle. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity just cleverly disguised. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, uh, simple but very true advice, especially if you join the Army, right? Maybe if you go to the Air Force first, it might be a little a little more clear, but sometimes things are as clear as mud in the military. I think that's on purpose. Um, thanks, Brian. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your story and uh, your per perspective on stuff. I know. Uh, and then for everybody else, 
go out there and check out his book. Uh, you still got a few days before Christmas to be a great stocking stuffer for somebody out there. And uh, who doesn't love a good good war story? Uh, especially, you know, that's kind of something that we hold on to uh, as tri as the tribe is those war stories. That's what. Uh, the memories we have, and then that, that's where the next generation gets the inspiration to come in and uh, protect this great country of ours. So thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. Everybody else out there, like, share, subscribe, do all that good stuff, and we'll catch you on the uh, next episode. Thanks, Brian. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Hey, I hope everybody enjoyed the conversation I just had there with Brian. Heck, of, some, some heck of a story that he has. Um, go down in the comments, uh, check out all of his socials, and uh, order a copy of his his book. Everything's in the comments below. Order a copy for yourself or, or for a gift for somebody. I'm sure based on the conversation that uh, we just had and you just listened to, it, it, it's a great read. A uh, couple more things before I sign off here. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, probably a little over a month ago, I got news that a former member of my platoon from when I was a platoon sergeant took his own life. And, uh, you know, I've been kind of trying to process this for the last month or so, because it was one of those ones where you're like, well, I, I would never have thought that I would have never seen that coming though. I didn't know him well, cause he was lower enlisted and I was a platoon sergeant. He was still one of my, one of my boys. And I, I, you know, I think what could I have done then to help him later in life? What could I have done as a leader to make sure that he was comfortable going and getting the mental health treatment that he needed or, or just picking up the phone and, and calling a, a friend. What could I have done? And, uh, you know, it's easy to look back and shoot holes in, in your leadership that you, you've done in your past life and past career. But I'm going to focus now on what I can do now. So I can either be part of the solution or I can be part of the problem. And I want to be part of the solution. And yeah, I'm doing it in a little bit of a different way. So if you look behind me, you can see Picture a ghost. Ghost is a Call of Duty character, and I think a lot of you know I'm going to team up with the uh, the infamous Valhalla Cowboy, uh, March fourth, twenty twenty three, for a twenty four hour live streaming event to raise some money and awareness, and give that money that is raised to a, a veteran nonprofit that is helping champion the cause of uh, mental health and and veteran suicide. And I think I'm close to teaming up with. Uh, with a nonprofit and there'll be more to follow on that. But I, you know, when you get out of the military, when you're saying your goodbyes, you're walking around, you're shaking everybody's hand. Everybody's always like, Hey, if you ever need anything, give me a call. If I can ever do anything for you, don't hesitate. Well, for everybody out there whose hand I shook and said that to me, this is it. This is my call to you. I, I want your help between now and March 4th or on March 4th to help raise a little money and a little awareness. And when I say a little money, if you can go into your ashtray in your truck and you can give a quarter, I'll take it. If you can get, give 10 bucks, I'll take it. Every little bit's going to help, uh, help hopefully raise some awareness and help somebody out there who's struggling, pick up the phone and call and, you know, save not only their lives, but save their relationships. Um, you know, it's a little thing that can hopefully do a lot of good. I, I, it's hard for me to explain it, but hopefully we can do, you know, a little bit of good. Uh, everybody I talk to about the podcast and you've talked to me, I I'm a firm believer in the power of one. So if we can get one domino to fall, hopefully we can get the rest of the dominoes to fall and we can, we can help some people out. So how can you help? 
So this channel, the Leading with Vulnerability podcast channel, we have a, I have a Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a service where I can take donations or you can subscribe and give me 10 bucks a month, five bucks a month to help literally keep this podcast alive. Uh, and I, I'm so grateful for those of you that have gave over the past almost two years that I've been on, on this endeavor. Um, starting January 1st through March, everything that comes into that Patreon is going to go to that, uh, better nonprofit charity, uh, doing good. So that's one way to give, check out the comments. There'll be a link to the Patreon in there. You can subscribe, you can be uh, do a one-time donation. Uh, there's all kinds of things you can do, but, uh, that's one way. And then as we get closer to March 4th, there'll be some other ways that you can, you can donate. And like I said, I don't care if it's 10 cents. I don't care if it's a hundred dollars, every little bit will help and will hopefully help, you know, save somebody's life in the long run. So get in there, check it out and then go follow my boy, my boy, my boy, Valhalla Cowboy on YouTube, the Tic Tac, as he says, and Instagram and just stay up with the story and uh, hopefully you, you, you'll help us out and share the, share it and, and we'll do some good. That's all we got to do, right? We we need leaders here. This is a way that I'm doing it. It's unique, but uh, hopefully I can get some support from everybody out there that I always said, hey, Yuma, you ever need anything? Well, yep, I need something now. And uh, for those of you who are already donating, your money is going to go straight to this veteran nonprofit. Uh, I appreciate it. And then for anything else we can get between now and March 4th, um, uh, thank you in advance. So, I hope everybody out there um, has a great Christmas and we'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. And if you got any questions, uh, please hit me up or ideas. Um, I'm here 24 seven if you need me. And then if you're out there and you're struggling and you don't have anybody to call, shoot me a message. We'll, we'll I'll definitely have a chat with you and uh, love you guys. Thanks for listening. And we'll, we'll see you on the next episode of the leading with vulnerability podcast out here.